I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast, a monthly roundtable podcast where the brothers behind Three Brothers Film discuss chosen movies, as well as broader topics in film culture. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed our discussions, please think about dropping a five-star rating or a review, or recommending us to your family and friends. We're always looking to expand our audience, bring more people into the conversation, and five-star reviews help new listeners find us and help us carve out a niche for quality, nuanced conversations about movies. I'm Aaron Bergstrom, and I'm here with my brothers. Anders. And Anton. My last name is the same as my brother's. And this week, we're talking about the return of movie theaters after a year of pandemic closures. But first, a roundtable discussion of F9 The Fast Saga, the latest film in the Fast and Furious franchise. The surprisingly long-running series about people driving fast cars and saving the world. Okay, Ramblers, let's get rambling. Alright, Dom. What's next? No matter how fast you are. I am not too be compared to you. No one outruns their past. I am more easy, you trying your best to become me. And mine just caught up to me. Been a long time, Tom. We live in the age of the franchise. Studios like Disney have a functional monopoly on Hollywood and have made it so that almost all major Hollywood releases rely on a franchise model of endless sequels, spin-offs, and remakes. Across Disney, Warner Brothers, Sony, Universal, and the streaming studios, including Netflix, Amazon, and Apple, Franchises such as Marvel, Star Wars, DC, and Harry Potter have dominated the box office and taken up the majority of screens at multiplexes around the world. These franchises operate on the filmmaking logic pioneered by Marvel, which is that every film needs to rely on a pre-established IP, extend the brand, and necessitate the further engagement of the viewer at the franchise. There can be formal and genre innovations within each individual film, but only insofar as these innovations don't deviate from the franchise formula, and preclude the promise of future installments. The Fast and Furious saga is the rare franchise to seem as much a Hollywood throwback as a product of this modern cinematic universe ethos. It certainly embodies the excessive use of CGI and mass-scale destruction that personifies modern blockbusters. It also has an expanding story world mythology and a large cast of characters, some of which have already gotten their own spin-off films. But the series isn't based on pre-existing IP, nor has it produced nearly as much ancillary content as the average Hollywood franchise. Furthermore, the series is still fueled by the simpler interests of tough men, beautiful women, fast cars, and big explosions. The series has also rapidly shifted over the years. The first several films were more interested in street racing subculture than larger action-moving plotting. The first film, The Fast and the Furious, which came out in 2001, was essentially point-break with street racing, and was largely an avenue for then-ascending stars Paul Walker and Vin Diesel, who played the series' leads Brian O'Connor and Dominic Toretto. Too Fast, Too Furious continued the racing focus, but switched the action over to Florida from L.A. in the first film, and Tokyo Drift took the series to Japan to look at the drift racing subculture in Tokyo. But the series began to shift in 2009 with Fast and Furious. Fast and Furious once again paired Vin Diesel and Paul Walker together, but its plot had more to do with international crime than street racing. Fast Five, widely considered the best film in the series, added Dwayne Johnson to the fold and took the crime plot even further in its full-blown heist storytelling set in Rio de Janeiro. Fast and Furious Six added espionage elements while upping the scale of the action, and by Furious Seven, the series had transcended its racing roots and become an action extravaganza with gravity-defined stunts and full-blown action spectacle. The fate of the Furious continued the upward trend towards large-scale spectacle, with a world-threatening villain and massive action sequences set in New York City and the Russian Arctic, one famously involving a nuclear submarine. The latest entry in the franchise, F9 The Fast Saga, continues the escalation of scale and spectacle that's occurred over the course of the series. It's not a spoiler to say the racers finally go to space in this film, which makes literal a long-running joke made by fans of the franchise. But F9 is also more indebted to the melodramatic roots of the series than the past couple films. Justin Lin, who directed entries 3 through 6, returns to the series with F9 and doubles down on a lot of the elements he introduced in his previous films, most notably the thematic and narrative focus on family. Here, Dom's long-lost brother Jacob, played by John Cena, arrives to terrorize the world, forcing Dom and his team to not only save the world, 
but deal with his unresolved family issues in the process. F9 is a massive-scale, overly-long action extravaganza, much like many Marvel movies, but it doesn't exist purely to extend the tendrils of the franchise like those Disney-made properties. It indulges in the snarky humor and action escalation of modern blockbusters, most notably in its space sequence, but it's also more focused on stunt work and practical filmmaking ingenuity than the typical Hollywood blockbuster. It's a complicated, globe-spanning action epic, but at its core it's also a simple story about the relationship between two brothers. My own thoughts on the movie are already public, as I posted a review of F9 on the site a few weeks back, but I'm curious about your guys' thoughts. Am I overstating the uniqueness of the Fast and Furious saga, or is it just another franchise in an era of franchises? So I'm going to start with you, Anton, since you haven't seen any of the other films in the series, except for maybe the first one. I've seen the first one, yeah. So, coming in cold, is F9 a fun summer action movie with some simple blockbuster pleasures, or yet another example of Hollywood's franchise oversaturation? I'm going to frame my response by telling a little story. So I'm... I'm a big Harry Potter fan. I read all the books and watched all the movies. And when I went to Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, so the, uh, the final installment in that franchise, I went with a friend who had only seen maybe the first movie. And we're sitting down to watch it. He seems like he's enjoying it. And as the movie goes on, he leans over to me and says, um, Anton, who's the guy with no nose? <laughs> and I was just like, I'm like... You know, like, what can you take out of this movie if you have no idea who Voldemort is when you're the seventh uh, film, part two? And that's part of my experience of seeing this movie. I kept leaning over to Anders and being like, who's this? Um, like, you know, like, who's this guy walking in? Why Why does this matter? Um, and Anders are filling me in on some of the characters and their backgrounds and, you know, how this, oh, this is actually the mom of this person. And so there's definitely a whole side, uh, which I think is part of the pleasure of this series um, that I, I'm not accessing. In terms of, like, just as a summer blockbuster and hitting the movie theater and seeing a movie like this, I feel like it's passable entertainment. Um, I found it moderately engaging probably more sour on the action and more more into actually the the characters like I just kind of enjoyed hanging out with some of the characters particularly Dom but I did think uh Roman and uh Ludacris's character were funny but um I wasn't blown away by the action and I'm not necessarily going to go back and rewatch the series uh, how about you Anders uh, I know you've been catching up on the other movies yeah, over the past so few weeks I had seen the first three yeah, actually, first four, roughly in the years that they came out. I think I saw the first one in the theater. I caught the second, third, and fourth on video when they came out. But um, then I kind of lost track of the series. Uh, you know, other other interests in life and filmmaking or film watching kind of goes through like phases, right? Where you have sort of different tastes for type different types of things. But I decided before I was going to see F9, I was going to binge through the whole series. So I actually rewatched all the first few and caught up with 5, 6, 7, 8. Still haven't seen Hobbs and Shaw. But and I, I probably definitely will go and watch it in the next uh, couple of weeks. <laughs> um, so I came to it having had a condensed. I was not, I'm not a longtime fan of the series, but coming to it with a, con, a sort of condensed experience of it. So the stories, the connections really flowed really well for me in F9. I really, uh, you know, the stuff that continued on themes and uh, sort of minor character arcs that were explored in like five, six, seven. I enjoyed some of that stuff. But I, I also think that I actually was, like Anton, I enjoyed some of the character stuff more than I thought I would. The flashbacks to, uh, you know, young Dom and Jacob and all that <laughs> stuff. The action, there's a couple scenes. I thought the opening jungle chase in Mexico or Monte Quinto or whatever, it was pretty good uh, because it, it ends in such a ludicrous fashion that oh, the, rope. the, uh, with the swing, <laughs> swinging out over the bridge. At, or after Jake does the, like, catch with the drone yeah, yeah, the, I, I preferred the uh the yeah. the plane being caught by the that, airplane but it totally gonna, at that point like it's something that the, sort of you started in number six with like ideas like we're gonna pull down a you know a plane with a bunch of cars stopped from taking off and stuff like that this like uh it's the logic of children playing with action figures right it really is like oh now his plane comes in and it catches the car as it's taking off so i didn't go down into the cliff and that's the stuff i actually kind of like about this series it's not like cynical and knowing it's like truly the joy of like a kid playing with his toys so i i think that's an interesting point and i think that's actually a part of the element in the filmmaking of this series there's one series modern series that 
actually overlaps quite well with the Fast and Furious movies in terms of timeline and then also structure, and it's the Mission Impossible series. So this franchise around the fifth movie essentially was like, let's just become Mission Impossible with cars. You got the team, we're going to do world-spanning, globe-spanning, saving stuff, and we're going to you know, have bigger and bigger scale. And more importantly, we're going to structure the films around the set pieces. So I remember listening to a uh, Christopher McQuarrie really long interview back when he made um, Fifth. Is it Fifth? Yeah. Rogue Nation? Rogue Nation. Yeah. And he was talking about the way they come up the screenplay. And it's essentially he writes it as they get greenlit to like different locations around the world so they have a skeleton of the story structure him and tom cruise talk over the things but they don't actually have a full screenplay written the screenplay shifts depending on where they're going because it has to suit the location but it also has to suit what you can actually get done there in terms of scale but it's like we know that he has to end up at this point and we need to have one two three action extravaganzas to get there and once you come up with those action points and where they're going to happen, then you have to come up with the stunt that you haven't done before. And once you come up with that, you fill the story around the stunt. And I totally think the movie like this operates off that principle. Obviously, I wasn't there when they're filming it, but like jungle scene. Okay, we're going to have the awesome rope. We're going to have the chase through the jungle and then we're going to have the rope jump and the like magnet airplane flyaway drone. Then we're going to have the sequence in London, the car chase. You know, the kind of, like, not really important scene with Helen Mirren showing up in a cameo. Okay, yeah, the Helen Mirren one. And then we're going to have the space sequence with the rocket cars. And then simultaneously, we're going to have the The magnet extravaganza. Magnet car chase in Tbilisi, Georgia. Georgia. Also, there's the Edinburgh, which I thought was actually one of my favorite scenes. Yeah, when he's zip lining, when Jacob is, and when they capture the, the whole magnet, city. And but that's also that's earlier magnet stuff, and then they use the magnets yeah. further. So, but you can kind of tell like they're building around those sequences. They're like, so how do we get these characters here to there? How do we get you know like the structure of these kind of movies operates differently than something like Marvel because it's not a back lot. You're filming in actual places and you're building it around the actual locations, right? But it also yeah. doesn't work like a movie like Independence Day where it's like a tight structure. So. I feel like you have to look at the actual action scenes themselves and kind of measure the movie on those. You really do. I, I, I think I, like, I agree in part. Um, I think Anders's point about children playing with action figures and watching my own kids, you know, like set up little things and then someone's all of a sudden jumping on the back of a dinosaur and going. Like that <laughs> helps me understand kind of the logic of a movie like this. Because I, I, I think Mission Impossible is a good um, parallel, a good um, comparison. But where, where I'm more on board for Mission Impossible, and I actually love particularly the later installments in Mission Impossible, but uh, coming in somewhat cold, like I, I just don't understand that they still have to bring in all the car stuff into <laughs> like this world. So like I was saying to Anders, it's just like he just has to be driving, right, his... Uh, mm-hmm. Dodge, yeah. Yeah, his Dodge through the jungle. And it's just like, and then there just happens to be like a road to the, like, the wreck because they, they can't lose... The cars completely, yeah. even though they have right. the other stuff. But that's, that's why it really, really like I just imagine like old, even like eighties cartoons with like a GI Joe, and they have that, like different yeah. like. Actually, this is more like GI Joe than any GI Joe movie. Really, that's that's a good comparison, like eighties cartoons. And I think that's why it appeals to like a not necessarily a geek audience who though still grew up in the eighties and nineties with sort of like you know vehicular cartoon mayhem and stuff like that. So this they, this is why they also like you know, the Michael Bay Transformers movies have been so successful as well. It's the same kind of, like, more demographic that's not necessarily the guys who are into, like, Dungeons and & Dragons and, you know, comic books. Although, Vin Diesel is apparently a huge Dungeons & Dragons fan. <laughs> Soren, is, Soren is very uh, intrigued by that. You know, but, like, um, it's people who like cars and, like, explosions, and but still like the sort of goofy logic of a cartoon or a comic book. But yeah, yeah, can I just, like, I think that's really interesting that it's the combination of both sort of, like, you know, the typical kind of, like, sort of um, a, a, the, a, the, the classic sort of factors of appeal in, like, the action film, whether it's, like, the girls, the guns, the cars, all that sort of stuff. But then you have, there is this, like, extra layer of, like, what you've talked about is sort of the, the mythologizing, where you, all of a sudden you get, like, this fully developed sort of world where there's all these different characters who are somehow intertwined. And if you can know that backstory, like it's all a little bit richer. And that's, that's the interesting thing yeah. where I think Aaron saying like, you know, 
this is some they somehow turned this car series into you know um one of the closest rivals to marvel is is, is really interesting in terms of box office especially the uh, the other interesting thing about making the mission impossible comparison is that it actually reveals something that you kind of alluded to which is that the um like Mission Impossible, the first one, the Brian De Palma film, is actually quite tightly scripted. Like it's, you know, and that's, I've come back as much as I really, really love the, the last three Mission Impossibles. Um, I do love the first one the best, but it has, it, there's a tightness to it in the structure and it's more noirish and more, uh, you know, Hitchcockian, twisty yeah. kind of thing. And then, you know, we've talked about the later int- uh, entries with the, uh, the way they build around the stunts and locations. Fast and Furious, though, I feel like only really came into its its own when Lin took over the series. Really, there the first so two. That, which, which so he he that? directed the third one, but it's particularly in the fourth and fifth okay. that the series like shifts its its sort of truly exploitation film in the sense of exploiting like an interest in like uh, urban culture, street racing, you know, Los Angeles things like yep. that, and yep. then moving that to like you know Miami. Tokyo, that kind of thing. So the early films actually are less, they're a little bit, there's things to like about them, especially the first one, in part how much it relies on the formula of Point Break. But the, um, it is the really. The appeal no- of the first one is about that, like, like I remember, like, partly was that, like, getting Cars. into, like, the car world. Exactly. Where if you're not, like, a street racer, you might not know, like, how it sort of exactly. works. And, and the like, whole, like, where Nas became, like, everybody yeah, knows yeah, about Nas. Yeah, yeah, But then it becomes sort of a running gag in the series, too, right? Yeah. The whole use of it. Um, you can't have the film without somebody <laughs> playing loose canister of NOS at least once. That, I think that, so it is very instructive to compare it to Mission Impossible, but also shows the way this series, I think, did, uh, ha- has actually transcended its uh, origins, not even if insofar as um, finding a voice and a unique identity. No, I, I agree with everything you said. I guess it's, what I, what I meant basically with judging the film off the action scenes is more of, that's how you can understand these movies as standing out from each other, right? Like, Fast Five, part of the reason why people think it's so great is not only bringing Dwayne Johnson in and kind of solidifying the team dynamic, mm-hmm. but it's that ridiculous, ridiculous finale, which oh, is dragging like pitched, the safes. Exactly. Two cars dragging a giant safe through Rio de Janeiro, and it's pitched right on the edge of, like, camp, but it's still cool, yeah. and it's using the cars in a really ingenious way to do the heist. And so it's like it personifies what the action can do within this world they've created. Here's my question to you guys. In terms of the action sequences, you know, like, which was the standout? My question, like, you just sort of said how, like, you know, pushing it towards camp and not quite. For me, like, the magnet play worked. You know, it's outlandish, but they make it work. But the the space, I was not on board. Yeah, I agree. I agree. because So this is something I wrote in my review, which is essentially the magnet personifies what's good about this series you come up with an outlandish thing that ups the stakes of the last one you incorporate actual stunt work like the amount of cars they actually totaled in that scene is insane (laughs) and you can you can tell because he cuts to those low angle shots that are sitting right next to the tire to see the like actual impact smashing into the metal and that's not the kind of weight that you get with a cgi regardless of how good it is so he's actually incorporating you know real stunt work real cars being just just completely totaled even if like the flip and them jumping on and off the the vehicles is all kind of augmented with studio stuff but none of it's played for laughs right it's played for that's cool yeah space thing is veering into marvelisms in my mind where it's taking a character like tyrese gibson's roman who throughout the series is the joker type character he's specifically there to to allow a bit of levity and poke fun at the absurdity of what they're doing but without crossing over but the fact that he goes to space, which was a long-running joke of, like, what are they going to do in the next Fast and Furious movie? Are they going to go to space? Mm. And then Justin Lin's like, sure, we'll go to space. But it's played as such a little gag because, yeah, of course it's important for the actual plot to shut down the satellite. It's just like they get there and then they're like, oh, we might die. And then they just end up at this International Space Station. Like, like you know, there's, there's yeah. nothing to it beyond doing it. And the doing it is mainly for a joke. You could have engineered the scripts otherwise. Which this totally. movie and this series can be very funny. It can, especially yeah. I think with Dwayne Johnson in some of the, in the previous entries, Jason Statham. There's a hilarious sequence in Fate, uh, Fate of the Furious where it's like riffing on Hard Boiled where Jason Statham's protecting a baby while he's killing a bunch of guys. And he's, he's constantly pausing and like being like, hey baby, you doing all right? Oh, there's that smile. And then he like shoots three guys. Where's that smile? Uh, 
There it is. Cheaper. You're gonna shoot, baby. You sick bastard. It's very like, jungle. That's that's hilarious because it's you know it's that the pitch the tone is so right, but the series is best in like hard on sleeve earnestness where Dom is sitting there talking to his son and being like you know God's inside you. I'm inside you. You never have to worry. Family will be, always be there for you. The fact that when they ever they get together for a meal in L.A., you know, whoever reaches first has to give the prayer, and that's in every of the movies. First bite, he's got grace. House rules, man, house rules. It's kind of like you're hitting the formula, but the formula that's specific to this series, but that also is specific to these characters. So by being a Fast and Furious thing, it's also like a Dominic Toretto thing, so it's endearing. And that's why, in my mind... The best part of this movie is the flashback sequences, mm-hmm. which is really weird because it has, none of, it has none of the actors. But I actually really like the kind of high stakes 1950s melodrama that they get out of this story between brothers who we didn't know this brother existed until this movie. <laughs> I will I will actually note here, though, that it, one of the things that struck me just about those flashbacks is that today our 1950s uh, sepia tone flashbacks are 1989. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm starting to feel real old here. Anton, this pro- those sequences might not have played quite as well for you, but there is a constant illusion, especially in the first movie where he gives a whole speech to Brian. But even in the others, he's always alluding back to this relationship with the father, yep. the formative yep. story of how his father in- died and how that set him on this course. But also in Fast Five, he exemplifies how good a guy his dad was, right? When when yeah. Brian finds out he's going to be a dad. And the whole, uh, you know, how his dad used to, like, I, he'd make barbecue for everyone if they went after church. But they had to go to church first. And, like, you know, like, <laughs> you're like, he's painting this picture of this, like, it. and actually seeing the flashbacks made me, right, we could talk about the interesting character thing it did in this film, if you've seen all the movies, is it actually showed us how much of that story of his dad was Dom's rose-colored glasses. Yes. It's a, it's and, a, but that's but the, you know print the legend he's like the guy it, who's made the Toretto's who they are but it's also the thing that allows him to tell the story to others to create the reality that he wasn't able to right like he's able to make the family he wants because he tells the story of the family that then the way it never was exactly but like on just like a basic film level this is a good example of casting being very important because the actors specifically they have playing young dom uh, Vinnie Bennett is remarkably similar to Vin Diesel not just in like look or anything but like it's it's rare that you get a flashback sequence in one of these franchise films where I'm like that's actually like great casting and I could see them doing another movie where they just keep using him as like a younger version of Dom yeah because yeah, we'll do a in some of these Marvel movie. movies or others they would de-age them they would do others it's like no this trust basic filmmaking stuff you just get somebody who has the same charisma as the main actor but young unknown and you just go with it it's not really a franchise anton until they have a prequel though so <laughs> there you go although i was trying to explain to you the convoluted timeline of the series how f3 takes oh place <laughs> so actually that, but that's a good segue because one thing that i would assume anton is like incomprehensible to you is all the stuff with han yeah the han stuff was like i was like i have no idea what's going on everyone's sort of like weepy about han and then like han's secret like life as an agent later on and the daughter he adopts. And then, Anton, you didn't know that Gal Gadot had been in the series either with the one Yeah, shot. no, I was like, why is Wonder Woman here? Like, what's going on? Yeah, that's his love interest through three yeah. of them. Um, th- so the thing with Han is, God bless uh, Justin Lin and how much he loves that character, that he will literally pretzel this series into every possible form to bring him back. It's like, he dies at the end of Tokyo Drift. Okay, we're going to do retcon four, five, six, all take place before Tokyo Drift, so we can have Han in them. And then Han dies at the end of six. The key, it fixes, he beats up with Tokyo Drift. And it's like, now, no, we're just going to make it that he was actually like, you know, taken to a black site and like disappeared through the <laughs> Kurt Russell character. Just oh, so yeah, I can yeah, well, even Kurt again. Russell like screaming Nobody? on a, Kurt Russell screaming on like a scream, being like, oh, I'm under attack. I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> but do, don't you think the fact that they can have Kurt Russell just like popping up for this little bit kind of shows. But the, there's so much. There's so much going on in the movie. I even said to Anders, I was like, did he die in that plane crash? Or like, what happened? You don't know. It's open-ended. <laughs> I do absolutely love. So way back in 2002, when we worked at Blockbuster, I, I was really, I really enjoyed Justin Lin's debut film, Better Luck Tomorrow, a lot. Yeah. yeah I bought the, I bought the, I like I bought the DVD lot. and everything. Uh, and so I was actually very disappointed at Tokyo Drift when it came out. But you know, better luck tomorrow is a part. But of now, the that's what I was just going to say. It should. That's his love of Han goes all the way back to better luck tomorrow because, uh, you know, 
Khan is in. Yeah. Better luck tomorrow. His I mean, love of that Sun Kang, Sun Kang plays the same character through all these movies, and so retroactively, Better Luck Tomorrow is the pre is the prequel to Han in, in Fast prob- and Furious. In case you know, uh, listeners haven't seen Better Luck Tomorrow, and it's quite possible you haven't. It you know, it's a it was sort of like a indie. It's like a gangster movie, but it's also like it's about like Asian American overachievers in SoCal getting into sort of uh the gangster life and it's actually a really good movie and roger ebert was like a champion of it at the time but it's definitely worth checking out it's whether or not you are a fast and furious fan and you want you know the backstory on hand so in more kind of like a broader view instead of just going into the nitty-gritty of the franchise or mythology and stuff like do you think john cena works as the villain in this do you think that it works to, like, does he work in this movie or does it set him up to work well in future movies? Because I think that's kind of a question that you might have two different answers to it. I'll, I'll go first as the, the person, you know, cold to the franchise. Um, for me, John Cena didn't really work. I just found that, like, I was seeing the Anders on the way out that comparing Vin Diesel to John Cena, they're the brothers. I was like, it's just a total different level of, like, lead actor acting. Like... Like charisma, uh, for, it's it's not just the charisma. Like I I think Vin Diesel is definitely a better actor, and he's able to convey a lot. Like you know, Vin Diesel's character Dom like doesn't talk a lot, but he's able to convey a lot in his little like grunts and like when he does make a little comment, a lot a lot in the facial expressions. John Cena when he has a blank face has just a blank <laughs> face. He's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of blank that. face stares, and you're like, yeah. I'm not sure. Like he's not really conveying anything else. The character like I bought into the kind of like the backstory and it was enjoyable to see like he sort of works having someone who has sort of like an outside like an extra textual presence makes sense in that character role like you couldn't have a nobody you'd have to have someone who is famous from something but you're like head to head it's more just in comparison like Vin Diesel versus John Cena like one of these guys deserves to be a movie star we'll see you know what happens in Guardians of the Galaxy but or sorry uh, Suicide Squad but yeah, and I th- I think um, I've noticed a lot of other critics talk about Cena in this movie, and it's specifically the fact that it doesn't let him be funny, which is one of his greatest strengths as a performer. Oh yeah, okay. He's I mean, really he's very good in comedies at like cutting into the fact that he looks like a meathead. You know, he's a he's a wrestler. Yeah. For instance, uh, Amy Schumer's movie Trainwreck, I thought he was a highlight of the movie. He's very funny. He's very funny even in that stupid um, Will Ferrell Mark Wahlberg series where they're the two co dads or whatever. I, the reason I phrased the question that way is that I find him actually unsatisfying as the big bad here. Especially when you have, like, Charlize Theron in the box. We haven't even mentioned her as Cypher, who's the big bad in the last movie and clearly going to be the big bad in future movies. She has such a, like, you know, she, she doesn't do anything here, but she's Charlize Theron. She knows how to say the lines. She knows how to do the, like, give the look on camera. And you can just, from the little bits you get with her, you're like, yeah, of course she's the more formidable figure here. And There's we get no that question. little Star Wars sequence. Oh, that was funny. <laughs> that was really yeah. good. But with John Cena, it's like, oh, you're, you know, he really is the, like the little brother in the in the confrontations with, the, with Dom. He comes across as, yeah, even yeah. though he's huge, he comes across as diminutive both emotionally and like just presence on screen. But all that being said, in the finale, when he kind of turns against Cypher and you realize, you realize that she's letting him out to dry and he teams up with his brother briefly to kind of save the day i found it satisfying and it's there's a that little moment shared between them before he drives off which made me think that there's potential to grow this character and and the relationship and that might be hugely a result of how successful the flashback sequences are that you actually are invested in this brother relationship but i i don't know i'm i'm optimistic going forward and i think cena clearly wants to prove himself i just yeah, he's no Dwayne Johnson. He's no Jason Statham. Like he's no Luke Evans. He doesn't have that. Yeah, the uh, I would say the same thing. Like I think so. A lot of my satisfaction with the character and the character arc comes from what they did in the flashback sequences. Uh, you know, I, I don't dislike John Cena, but I I'm not sure that he felt strong enough to me that I would be like it's not it's not a slam dunk they bring him back. Like and it would work just fine if we don't see him again for like five films and he has a little cameo <laughs> to remind us that there's another Toretto. That's that's true. You know, but like it wouldn't hurt the series in the way that if they had just dropped Cypher, it would, right? Because Charlie is, it, she's she's relishing this opportunity to play that kind of villain, like hammy Bond villain, right? Yeah. So she's first in number eight. 
Yeah. And I'm assuming she'll be the villain through the rest of the series. Like the, the, the Blofeld character. Until it becomes unprofitable. I think they said they're only making two more. Because Vin Diesel's getting too old. I think he said that they'll do maybe some, like, flashback movies, but, like, solo Dom Toretto, (laughs) young Dom movies, but, yeah, it's true. He's so, um, he's so wedded to this franchise. So, I didn't say that, but, like, um, Universal owns the Fast and the Furious franchise. What's their other big franchise, right? It's Jurassic Park. You know how much Mm. people are clamoring for a crossover (laughs) between this series? And the thing is, with the absurdity of the Fast and Furious franchise, it's like, if they had dinosaurs, I wouldn't be too shocked. (laughs) Well, they've already gone pretty absurd in Jurassic Park, so you can do it. They've been talking for a couple of years about that Mm. idea. And I think after uh, Jurassic World Dominion or whatever, this next year, that might lay the groundwork for something like that. Um. Overall, Anders, like, where would you put, where would you rank F9 compared to the others? Uh, for me overall, I'd say it's maybe on par or a little below 8. I, I'd rank 5, 6, 7 my favorites. 5, I think, easily the best, then 6, 7. Then I would put 8, 9, and 4, roughly. The same, although 4 has a, really, a couple of really standout things, and I, I credit it for truly making the shift in the series. So, yeah, it's middle of the pack, I'd say. kind of want to rewatch 4 because I... I feel like after re-watching this whole series, it, it's the one that, yeah, it makes me, because I've now invested in these characters, I want to go back to that one because it establishes the kind of blockbuster formula for them. But it also does have just some awesome, awesome stunts. Like that opening in the Dominican. Yeah, that opening, the, the, the tanker heist is awesome. Aaron, were you watching, have you been watching this series for years now? No. Or <laughs> so I as well? I or? specifically was like, there's a good chance F9 is the first movie I see in theaters. Because it's going to be the big blockbuster. I don't really yeah. want to go see Black Widow as my first movie in theaters. So, when after pandemic reopening, and I'm like, I want to enjoy it properly. So I'm going to watch the eight because I, you know, on the last episode of this, we were talking about '90s action movies, and then we, I've been watching like the Riddick films. I've been watching a lot of throwback action, and I'm just like, the Fast and Furious franchise. No matter how bloated they are, no matter how much they can draw in these things of modern films, they really do feel like they're rooted in that pre-9-11, like, tail end of the 90s kind of optimism of what you can do with an action franchise. And just, it, it seems to be the one large franchise I can think of that keeps that ethos alive of just, like, it's just a sequel, and you're going to, yeah, it can get complicated, but it's going to be more action, and it's just going to be superstars and this international cast, and, like, it's a Vin... It doesn't work if you don't get Vin Diesel. Yeah. That's actually why I would... I mentioned to Anson that I feel like as much as it is definitely, no question, I'm not going to debate that it's part of like the contemporary franchise you know, cycle and everything, but it does feel even more of a throwback to me even than 80s and 90s. I think there's a little bit of a classic Hollywood kind of like feel to this with its mel- appreciation of high melodrama, of character despite having spectacle um, and all that kind of stuff. So... I, I think there's something really classical about it, even though also they're not all thematic. amazing. Remember, also the '60s had that period of like the car chase movie. Mm-hmm, exactly, like the characters and the family story yeah. and stuff like that. That seems very classic Hollywood, like '40s, '50s. Totally. Just yeah, the, like the, it's rare that I feel like these movies have a little bit more of like a moral to the message than like your average blockbuster. And 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 I'll to give it credit, I'll say that like the family sort of dynamic seems a little bit more earned than some other franchises try to get sort of emotional or deep. See, Anton, you have to go back and rewatch. You have to watch, a f- I think you should watch 5, 6, 7 just so you can kind of get the emotional pinnacle of the series, which works with the off-screen death of Paul Walker. And it's it works so well with the melodrama of this series and its tributes towards, like, pure emotion between, like, dudes Furious 7 kind of ends with this letting Paul Walker ride off into the sunset. And it if you read it on paper, if you hear a description of it, it sounds so cheesy and bad. And you watch it, and you're just like, bless. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. The roads were a little empty. Places where we used to gather went quiet. We've gone through a year that tested us, but we're starting to see the promise of a new day. For more than a hundred years, there's one place where we all came together to be entertained, to escape, to go someplace new, 
the movies. There's nothing like that moment when the lights go down. The projector ignites. And we believe. Movie theaters are finally back. The United States and other parts of Canada may have never had theaters close outright, or if they did, they had them reopen in late spring. But here in Ontario, movie theaters have finally reopened, making it once again possible to see a movie in the way it's intended. While there was a brief moment last summer when movie theaters reopened and films such as Christopher Nolan's Tenet attempted to reignite the domestic box office, viewers largely stayed away from theaters and the film only managed $57 million domestically. Pundits worried that the theatrical window had died and that the domestic box office was not going to last long even after the pandemic. Luckily, it seems that news of the death of movie theaters has been greatly exaggerated. While the domestic box office has not entirely rebounded to pre-pandemic levels, there is a growing appetite for returning to the theater to see movies, even those movies that are simultaneously offered on streaming at home. So you have Godzilla vs. Kong, which was probably the first big release in theaters this spring, coming out at the end of March in the United States, and it's grossed around $100 million, even though it was also playing on HBO Max. More recently, you got A Quiet Place Part 2 and Black Widow, which have both grossed around $150 million each domestically, even though both those films are also available on streaming, with um, Quiet Place Part 2 on Amazon Prime and Black Widow available for rent on Disney+. And of course, the top grosser at the 2021 box office so far, any guesses? It's F9, which is not offered on streaming, surprise, but it's made around 163 million and counting, which to be fair is not up to the levels of the previous films in the series, which were all kind of two to $300 million grossers, but it's a far cry from the meager gross of something like Tenet. So looking at these grosses, seeing movies back in the theaters, are we actually seeing movie theaters return or are we just kind of in an artificial bubble that people are enthusiastic about post-pandemic going out there and doing things and then that'll just tail off. Like, what do you guys think, Anders? No, I think um, what we're seeing is movies slowly return to something uh, more similar to like actually having significant theatrical releases and box office. But the I don't think streaming and simultaneous streaming is going away. I think that stuff was going to start happening anyway pandemic or no pandemic maybe this speeded it up a bit but i think so i think what we're seeing is a rebound of movie going to some degree so we're, we we will recover from the pandemic depression to the movies but i think that what will happen is movies will return to a previous level though i think that we will sort of see the end of some of the artificial the overinflated box offices of the last few years from like saturation and stuff like that because we'll get uh, simultaneous streaming releases. So we won't have those like the $800 billion grocers like Force Awakens and Infinity War and stuff like that. But um, I think we'll get back up to having like, you know, a two, 300 mil grocer, but that will also do well on streaming on whoever's service. Do you think that the one type of movie that will most be affected in terms of box office with the simultaneous on streaming is like children's films? Because why would yes. you pay the tickets for kids if you can just see trolls also, or the Also, you can get, or even if you're paying for it, you can get like five or six kids over yeah. rent it and it's cheaper. But I, I guess this actually raises something that I've been thinking about, which is, I think this is magnified coming out of the pandemic, but part of the point of a movie, and this is hard for someone who's passionate about movies as a art form, but like part of the point of movies for a lot of us is to just get out of the house. <laughs> yeah. And, and, like, I think we, we underestimate that that's a motivating factor sometimes when we go see movies, especially when you get into, like, film buff talks, and we even assume that people are just going to see a movie because they, like, really want to see this work. A lot of the times, it's literally, like, I want to get out of the house this weekend. Let's go see a movie. People will and, show up at the, so, box, so, at the block, at the, you know, box office and be, like, pick one yeah, randomly. But but I think this is, this is big for um, teenagers where there's not as many places to go hang out. So movie theaters, you know, are going to be a place where like people are still going to want to go somewhere. And so if movie theaters mm-hmm. are open, I think they'll still draw a segment of the audience. What, what my biggest concern is actually what this does to basically like the art house or indie films. And apart from sort of a theater that can curate that for a particular audience and keep that going, I don't know if they're going to even be in the multiplexes because I don't, 
know if you're going to... Like, usually you're having 10 people show up in the theater for some of these movies. I don't know if they're even going to dump them in the theater. Well, that actually but may... That actually interesting on that point. That may end up benefiting some independent movie theaters like in Waterloo and Kitchener, the, uh, the Princess Cinema and Apollo Cinema, because... If Cineplex and Landmark aren't going to carry sort of mid-tier or lower films in terms of box or uh, budget and like distribution and stuff like that, they might lose even less to uh, Cineplex and stuff. And you might actually have um, you might get some movies that exclusively to you that you wouldn't have gotten exclusively before. Here, here's my thought: is that one of my problems with streaming is curation. Like I don't like algorithmic recommends. They don't work for me. It's not how I operate when I'm trying to figure out what to watch. So I, I don't want these vague, stupid categories of like a descriptor that like Netflix gives me. I just want to see like what the new release is or I want to be able to easily search by like director. That's like the way my mind operates. It's still back to the video store. But I think like an art house, maybe this just an idea, but like going forward, you're like, if you can manage a curation where you're like people will trust that you're finding and bringing those because the the hard thing about independent films on streaming is finding them. Unless you're following other writers who are recommending well, them, it can be really hard to even notice they're there. I will say the the indep- more the what the uh, the streaming services that I have, like Movie and Criterion Channel, that are curated rather yeah. than algorithmically oriented, uh, do often drive that kind of a different kind of viewing for me. Like I'll you know Criterion will put together a program essentially of like 10 films from a genre or director or actor or something like that. And I find that really satisfying. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so in Toronto, like the Tiff Bell Lightbox hasn't opened up yet, yeah. but I'm not really, I'm not really worried about them. Like they will rebound. There is a, such a solid base of people who are like, I can't wait to, you know, obviously the festival itself, but like there's that contingent of newly retired, artistically interested culture people who are like, they go see three movies a week and it's whatever's playing at the light box is what they're seeing because they know that it's curated yeah. for them by film programmers to do the festival. So it's going to be the important international or independent films. And you get other thing, you get other theaters, you get theaters like, you know, the, the Royal or whatever. And like those, those theaters have been kind of switched into, you know, second run. And then all the kind of interesting little independent or art house or review stuff they play is actually has already kind of broken down into these little curated programs. You know, you'll have you'll have kind of like a drunk cinema thing, and then you'll have a you know, and you're gonna get like yeah. one or two nights a month where they put on the program, and it's these same hosts that do it, and they pick the movie, and then the, the crowd of a hundred people who follow these people on Twitter or whatever get to see them in person, and that's like kind of how they've been approaching this and staying alive in general. So I don't think that's gonna go away either. I do think that the multiplex is gonna consolidate. They're not going to have three cinemas in the city. They're going to have one. Most of the screens are going to be for Disney films, like they already are. But I think my biggest worry comes from um, with those smaller features where a distributor is just like so desperate for any amount of money that can come into it. They'll put it onto a digital release and it'll just get swallowed into the maw and do crap for like two months. And then a multiplex or even a smaller second round theater is not going to pick it up because they're like, well, nobody's talking about that because it just disappeared. You know, like by having that simultaneous window, it doesn't work simultaneous for the indie things because they generally actually have like a slow drip one or two month, just, but just digital. This was a problem already before the pandemic. I know, but it's going to become more, I think. Yeah. But what I'm saying is like, that is, that was going to get worse and worse. The pandemic may have speeded it up. But this is a trend. So what I'm what I am generally saying is, I think we'll see the continuation of trends that were going on in distribution, viewing, uh, attendance, everything before the pandemic. The pandemic may have just speeded everything up a little bit. Yeah. But on so on the flip side, do like I don't think there's gonna be a uh, who who knows. But I, I don't think there's gonna be kind of like a a parasite this year or a movie like that where it's that kind of mid level hit that gets the word of mouth for four months and just makes a good amount of money and then wins all the awards just based off that. But do you think there's any potential for some of these movies coming out in the fall? Because there's a lot of these blockbusters that were pushed from last year that are like huge scale, like the tentpole tentpoles that they wouldn't want to risk in a pandemic, right, really. So you got James Bond, you got Dune. It could go either way. Do you think there's a potential for James Bond to be like a huge, huge, huge hit? Yeah, because every I do. single person in the world wants to you get know, to see the new James there Bond There are a lot more theaters. Bond film like fans than you know. They're like, people who aren't like that there are diehard bond people 
will go see that movie who wouldn't see other movies. Yeah. They yeah. go up to quite an older age, too. But what I mean is, like, do you think there's a thing where basically you have a lot of normal people who are like, I haven't seen a movie in two years. There's a new Bond movie, and I feel safe to go out. So I'm going to go to the Bond movie. I haven't, I'm not really a movie guy, but I'm going to see the Bond movie. Mm-hmm. I know and who Daniel that, Craig is. And then that creates a kind of, like, artificial... Yeah. Everybody thinks that, like, oh, my goodness, blockbusters mm. are back. But then on the flip side, do you think something like Dune is just going to, like, absolutely bomb... And just like take out a huge corner of the, like you know, Warner's just never going to throw money at anything that's not a DC product ever again. I could I could see either of those things happening or not. <laughs> I I do think that the this is just based on like talking to people, but like I do feel like there is even at the same time like I mentioned that there's a desire sometimes to just get out of the house and go see a movie. Um, I also do think people have gotten very comfortable and attuned to like streaming is like their main source of entertainment, and like so I just. I do think, like, I'm, I, like, I can't tell, like, what the, you know, like, what the numbers would be, but I also do think that there's probably a small segment that is kind of thought, they never were that passionate about going to the theater, and I've just been sort of like, yeah, it's not really, like, worth the effort, and they'll maybe see maybe one movie a year, but it was never a big priority previously, it was just something you did, and we maybe, we've maybe lost that segment, they just, if they're gonna have simultaneously, they'll just use this as the excuse to stay home so it's kind of like the full transition of movies for a certain segment of the population into just content which is the way the industry is already treating it but like segment you know there are it takes certain genres obviously like the diehard marvel fans are going to go see the marvel movie opening night horror movie audiences are always going to go see horror movies because being scared with others is like the whole appeal and then like broad comedies you want to laugh with other people but do, do people care whether their DreamWorks animated film is on Netflix or in the theater? I really enjoyed the last Pixar movie just on Disney. Didn't hurt my appreciation of it. I think those will often play at home. I, like, I think you're you're right about that in the sense of, like, it's the weekend. Um, put it on. We'll put it on for their kids because, you know, like, you might even, because then you can do it, you know. It's, the convenience of it will will be a big draw, I think, for a lot of the Like, people the don't realize stuff. how many subscriptions Disney plus sold in the last two years like it's insane their growth was unprecedented like the number of american and north american families who have a disney plus subscription is huge for exactly the reasons you mentioned it's to put on all those old disney movies without having to buy them but actually and the new ones are an added yeah like value like people are people are really excited about even still watching, like, the number of other parents but, and people I said, oh, have, have you seen this Pixar? They, they have the franchises, too. But even the Pixar, right? That's like, true. Yeah. yeah, and they get the Marvel for the dad in the evening or the the Disney or, like, you know, they have all those, like, holiday fare, too, and stuff. Yeah. It's funny how this kind of, the current on the podcast has become just the endless talk about, cur- you know, content and the streaming wars and the death I know, of we've cinemas. been beating these bushes for a long time now. <laughs> but I guess we're going to get some answers soon. It's possible. I, I do often think back to those, what was it, like 2013, the George Lucas, Steven Spielberg comments of like, just wait for two or three of these big blockbusters to go down. And in my mind, it's very much, I have like a little sticky note where when you see, if one Marvel movie underperforms, that won't be it. But when two Marvel movies underperform, this whole industry is shifting. And I'm very curious when those are going to happen because, you know, Black Widow, it's underperforming get, relatively. But you get the pandemic. But it's the pandemic. Pass. So you can't that really doesn't blame count. it. But if Eternals collapses this fall, like, is that a different and story? And Shang-Chi and... I don't think either of those, like, who's excited for those? But that speaks to what we were talking about with Fast and the Furious, where it's like, my concern sometimes is like, I just want some of these things to fail simply that, like, it, it, it ends the cycle. It's, not, it, it's just that, like, I actually think that, like, why partly I haven't followed Marvel that much in the past couple of years, except for the... The, the very biggest ones is that it started to feel like too much They're, and it, they keep drawing more and more of your attention they want you to not only watch the series but also watch all the episodes star wars is going to be heading in that direction and just like it's too much you're like i don't want to i want to like watch movies i don't want to just live in the marvel world I love Star Wars. I don't want to just live in a Star Wars world where all my content is Star Wars. But it's even more cynical than that, and it's even kind of based off of video game industry logic, where it's, 
you buy the new video game, you say you buy the new Call of Duty. Yeah. Lots of these new games are either free or a portion of it is free or it's a base rate, but it's like you turn it on, you try and play this main story. Actually, it's only a two hour like preview of the story. You have to pay the extra to get the other part of the story or it assumes that you've read the, like the novelizations or these web, ser- web series episodes that were on YouTube or on Twitch or something. And it's just like, why? Your, all your content is doing is just being like, you need to go seek out this other content. And then that content is just like, oh, you should seek out this content that sent you here. And it's just this like simulacra thing of just going round yeah. and round. And it's it's frustrating on like a pure user level. Like like even if you take all the art out of it as like a consumer, yeah. it's frustrating. It's like, almost, you, it's almost you, like Kafka-esque. Like, no, but like, like, can't we, you just give me a single unit? Because no. all... All it's movies, an Ouroboros, it just swallows yeah. itself. All these movies, right, like, you know, Hollywood movie making, it's always been about, you know, the commercial side. But there's this extra level of, like, like give me your life. Give me all your time into consuming this content. Like, it, it's just so obvious the way they'll, like, try to, like, extend it that, like, it gets, it just, to me, it's like it gets unreasonable. And you're like, you know, I can't, I'm not going to devote my life to seeing every Marvel connection. Like, I if, can't do if, that. If you were to stumble across our civilization from a million years in the future, you wouldn't be unreasonable to imagine that some people were acolytes of a Marvel cult, <laughs> that they spent all their time and devotion to these stories. They decorated their shirts and houses and posters and toys, and they ate from a Marvel-branded water bottle, and yeah. they were acolytes of Marvel, and the same thing for Star Wars But and it other goes things. even further, is that the majority of their engagement with the world was correcting the, like, to use a Marvel term, like, the sacred timeline of events. It's like, no, that's not actually the correct, like, trivial piece. This is how it fits all together. And So they participate. The, so, the it's like, yeah, the engagement with story is actually just a means of showing that you watched the story and it's it's just a very like literal minded way of going about things i always thought um it wasn't one of terry gilliam's best films but zero theorem there was the the church of like the holy batman in the future and i i actually kind of think we may arrive there at some point (laughs) (sighs) resigned sigh (laughs) well on that happy note i think we're gonna leave it there for today so please check out our written content at threebrothersfilm.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, which is at Three Brothers Film. Thanks so much for listening. Hope to catch you next time on the next episode of Three Brothers Filmcast. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I bid you farewell. <laughs>